Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Kyle Lopez-Schmidt on the show. Kyle is a trained architect and the executive director of the South Tower Community Land Trust. In this conversation, we discuss affordable housing, planning commissions, Airbnb's effect on the housing stock, homelessness as a housing problem, historical preservation, and more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. In the U.S., Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Kyle, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Yeah, I like to eat lots of places, but kind of for our purposes, I'll probably focus in my neck of the woods, like Belmont and South. So like nice farm to fork type food is something I enjoy a lot. So Luba Lula is a destination really love. Chef Ian there is a friend of mine has always really done great work. And then maybe like a trio of Mexican restaurants from Belmont. We've got La Posta at Belmont Palm has really great birria tacos. Recommend those. La Elegante in Chinatown. And then like the closest to me is just walking distance is Don Tacha at Blackstone. So you find me there in the patio at least once a week. Um, and then kind of date night, my wife and I like going to Umi Sushi on Kern Street. Um, kind of a, a set of uh, different choices for people. Yeah. So if you had your choice, would you go to Labalua for breakfast or lunch? Ooh, that's a great question. I think I most often go there for lunch, um, but I do know they have like some really good brunch things. I have loved the huge cinnamon roll, but I realized I haven't had it many times after a couple of times in the beginning, just because it's so huge. <laughs> it's like four people to tackle that thing. Yeah. And it kind of, it kind of, I mean, I love it. I've, I've also had it. It kind of ruins your day lightweight. So <laughs> you have to like be prepared for lack of productivity, but it's definitely worth it. And so yeah, I kind of that for special uh, occasions where I intend to just lay on the couch and stare at walls. So, so let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, so we're going to start with some kind of real basic definitions, and then we'll sure. get into kind of the more of the specifics. So my plan is to really just talk about kind of the background and what a land trust is. And then we're going to jump into affordable housing, homelessness, questions about tower districts. So we're going to get into the meat, but let's kind of take yeah. a step back and define things for people. So they know what we're talking about before we get into the meat of it. So let's yeah, start with yeah. your kind of background. So can you kind of chart your background as almost like a path leading to working in the context of a land trust? Yeah. Um, so kind of from an early age, I would say like middle school, I remember wanting to be an architect. I took a draft class at Computech and that really got me excited about drawing buildings. I did like a floor plan elevation drawing. It's like final assignment. And like, that was the moment I... I decided I'd be studying architecture. So that was this pathway that I was on and, you know, studied architecture at, there's even architecture classes at Edison, which was really cool to be able to like dive into that at the high school level. And then, you know, didn't do well enough to get to the university right away. So I was at Fresno City College, which also has a really excellent architecture program and continued doing that, but also kind of explored philosophy and writing and anthropology. Those topics were really interesting to me. Always been gravitated towards more of like a people focus and not towards like the high design type stuff. And so from City College, transferred to UC Berkeley and got my degree in architecture there. And my first job out of school was a fellowship with this nonprofit think tank called Public Architecture. And so that was really continuing this, this pathway of like people and community-centered deployment of architecture and not focusing on, you know, kind of the clients that could afford good architecture, but like, you know, normal people who don't usually get to think about their environment in a creative way, like embedding that into everyday people's lives and you know, that 
everybody can be a designer. And so I learned a lot of like community design centered tools of like designing with a group of people, which if you talk to some architects, they hate that. And that was the work that I loved. They're like, hate designing by committee. And I was like, that's the great way to work because you can really get into some interesting conversations and result in some interesting products. From then I was doing like some traveling, you know, kind of trying to figure out where I was going to land in the world as far as this work. So I did some projects in Sri Lanka that was working on a, an orphanage and community center there. And in Nicaragua, worked on a community-owned coffee village, both with kind of like programs helping you know, do development work abroad. And the thing that really struck me was I was like witnessing conditions that were reminding me of home both in bad ways of, you know, poverty and environmental degradation and just really complicated social issues that, you know, you could really witness in the built environment, but then also good things like the kind of diverse culture, communities coming together around food. And like, even when you have very little, you can always have really beautiful meals of, you know, homegrown produce and like diverse kind of cultural experiences that way. And so those things really drew me back to Fresno to, you know, focus my work here rather than kind of traveling around the world and, you know, helping communities that I might not even get back to and see the results of my work. Um, so that brought me here. And then I've gone through, you know, working in a corporate architecture environment that really wasn't a good fit for me, was laid off during the housing crash in 2008 and started my own business with a colleague that was also laid off. I had to explore that together. And then ultimately had this experience. I stood on this, you know, some different committees with City of Fresno, and one of them was the general plan update that happened in, what was that, 20, 2010, I think it was happening, and was really exploring any, you know, and hearing the community members ask for good planning, you know, mixed-use neighborhoods, high-quality affordable housing, parks, and all these things that people were asking for. And then the developers that were coming to the table were saying, there's no market for that stuff, that stuff doesn't pencil out. They were using these terms that were like, you know, industry-specific and was realizing that I was lacking some of that financial knowledge, you know, and it was this weird dichotomy where hearing all these public members asking for these things and then hearing developers saying that there's no market for it. It was like, the market is right there, the community members asking for it. Um, so at that point, I kind of made this decision where I wanted to understand development more, especially the financial aspects um, so that's when I, you know, started looking for work beyond architecture and, you know, went into work in a community development financial institution called the CDFI. That's kind of like a community centered bank and started to gain knowledge about how, you know, where is the money for this type of work? How does it flow? How do you get ready for it? And then I've also worked in an affordable housing development company. It was actually a for-profit, and so it wasn't quite a good match for my, my values and only spent a year there, but gained a lot of knowledge about how to put together you know, the financial documents and the partnerships needed to, to draw down you know, pretty major resources for housing. You're talking in the tens of millions of dollars. And so those things I feel like I've like cobbled together and have enough knowledge about to be dangerous and that's when I had a big organizing event in my own neighborhood where there was a uh, police substation that had been decommissioned. It was no longer being used, was slated for demolition and uncovered, you know, a plot to quietly rezone that property and give it to a for-profit developer to do market rate housing in the neighborhood where I grew up where people were actively being displaced by increased housing costs. There wasn't any like affordable housing in the neighborhood being built. And so that was like a, a challenge. There's also a very big lack of park space in the neighborhood. So we organized around getting a park installed there. And that was what the majority of the community really wanted to have happen. So that was like a four year long organizing campaign that I was leading. And from that really saw the need for us to have, 
you know, neighborhood design and development capacity and really community-centered development approach to take on projects like that. And that really was at a time when I was learning more about different types of community organizations. I already knew about what's called a CDC, a community development corporation. But that's when I learned about, you know, an organization that really was getting started, you know, from 80s to 90s is when it's really history of a CLT, a community land trust. And that model really resonated with me. I read a research paper of a Patience Milrod, who's an attorney in the neighborhood, really diving into how a community land trust could be used in Fresno. And so that was like a guiding document for, you know, how we would take this organizing around the park and turn it into, you know, the organization that we have today that can be building up that development capacity and, you know, stewarding community ownership over the long term. So this isn't just, you know, what we're doing in the media, but really taking generations long view on what we want our neighborhood and our community to look like in the future. So that's that's the you know, basics of how I got to uh, founding the South Tower Community Land Trust. And it was a, kind of this pathway that really started in architecture, rooted in, in community, and, and led to, to that. Okay, so we, we kind of have the basic parameters here. Now we have to dig into the problem because the problem really in California is affordable housing. So we're going to jump into that kind of in substantive ways now. So there was a report that came out in 2020, which admittedly probably makes makes the conclusions that they drew uh, probably not as bad as they are now. They probably yeah. got worse since then, uh, but yeah, at least- like definitely exacerbated things. <laughs> yeah, so in that report- uh, they listed 523 of the 539 jurisdictions in California as uh, at least 20% of low-income renters in those areas spend at least half of their income on housing, yeah. uh, which is crazy. I mean, I can't. I, I just that's a that's a huge proportion. I mean, when you go to a bank to get a you know a loan for a mortgage for your home, they tell you somewhere between 28 and 20 and 28%, I think is the the kind of the advised kind of proportion of your income to your housing costs. Uh, so yeah. clearly that's way too high. Can you zoom in though on the affordability crisis in your specific neighborhood, which in some ways I think can be overlooked because it's constantly contrasted with the extremes that are the Bay Area and Southern California. And so yeah. the, the extremes of those makes them, you know, kind of draw media attention. But there are extremes here, even if the relative the relative cost of housing in San Francisco is so much more. The extremes here exist because, you know, there is low income folks that are struggling to make ends meet, even if it isn't as crazy as $6,000 a month for an apartment in San Francisco. So can you give us the specifics of your neighborhood? Yeah, so probably telling my story of trying to buy a house would be would be a good one. You know, first of all, I, I had bought a home in 2008, kind of actually it was 2009 after the kind of main hit of the housing crisis and you know bought that home for $170,000 and this was just about 2 months before I got laid off for my architecture job so that created this major crisis for us and ended up you know after several months of trying to get loan adjustments and deferments and things like that ended up getting foreclosed on. So, you know, lost that home. And what I saw was, you know, pretty disheartening that, you know, that home sold for less than, you know, what I bought it for. So that was like, oh man, that really hurt. But then, you know, move forward, it's now, you know, more than doubled that in its value. So that was a big hit on kind of like how that economy was flowing. And then I was finally in a position again in 2020 to buy a home again and was looking in the tower district, looking in the neighborhood, you know, where I grew up, you know, focused south of tower, south of Olive, but anywhere in tower would have been great. And everything we put in an offer on was going for, you know, 10 to $15,000 more than the asking and wasn't in a position to do more than the asking price because how how a home is financed with like an FHA loan, the appraisal of it, like what the you know market says it's worth, 
is really important in that's how much that they're basing the loan on. And if you make an offer that's above that, you have to bring that in cash because the you know the bank's not going to loan you more money than what it's worth. And so that was a you know kind of difficult situation where you know put in five different offers and all of them going for for higher than asking, and ultimately found a home in the Lowell neighborhood that is a historic house, and the owner was actually wanting somebody to come that was actually going to you know treat the home with integrity and carry on the historic preservation that they had started, and so we're able to get something that was at asking price and that was up at 269,000. So that was the difficulty of seeing like, you know, even myself being in a good financial position, being a privileged white male, you know, so there's no like systemic barriers in me trying to buy a home, having a second income with my wife, we weren't able to buy something in our own neighborhood. So that displacement was happening for even people that were, you know, had decent incomes. And when you drill down to it, a couple of things were happening. Investors were buying houses to do Airbnbs. And so they were buying a home, doing some minimal improvements. And then, you know, through the Airbnb process, you're earning more rent than if you just rented it month to month to a, to a resident. Um, people that are trying to like be better in their values will tell you that they're doing it for traveling nurses. That was a big thing. Traveling nurses, you know, renting homes um, during the during the pandemic, which uh, was a thing in COVID, but probably not at the numbers that are being produced. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then the other thing I saw happening was uh, Bay Area investors, you know, folks that are earning higher incomes over there that couldn't necessarily enter um, the housing market in the Bay Area were buying homes here for their investment. Uh, purposes, you know, so that they could have an investment property and um, asking for the most rent that they could possibly, you know, because when you're just searching Google and like uh, trying to decide what you're going to rent and then they're renting them for more, you know, trying to incrementally go up that way, the market chases itself up. So we see, you know, rents increasing that way. And then with kind of the housing market heating up with less inventory, but a lot of people wanting to buy homes. People were able to flip things very easily of going and doing minimal improvements and things that are more aesthetic or not even quality work. And then asking for higher housing, you know, purchase prices that again, is like been chasing it up. And you see it specifically in neighborhoods like the Tower District because the neighborhood has a brand and like a desirability that you can use the tower brand to sell your home for more than it's worth just because of your proximity to the community that we have built. So the community we've built together, outside folks are profiting upon just by using the name rather than putting in you know, yeah. real investment that they should to these homes. You know, so those were like specific things that I was seeing, you know, in my neighborhood that were driving prices up and driving people out. And it's also dependent too on people's income. So I did like a cursory glance at like census data on like average incomes in the neighborhood. And so for a household, it's around 45,000, which is about 3,000 a month after taxes. And so if you can <laughs> if you can imagine trying to keep in that 20 to 30% range uh, of your income uh, for housing costs, if that's what you're making as a, as a household, that that would be pretty tough in the tower district. I mean, I can't imagine. So twenty percent of three thousand uh, a month is six hundred bucks a month. Uh, so if you go, yeah, if you go, if you max out, yeah, if you max out and and get to thirty percent, which is kind of the the top end on what you know. I mean, you know, people in big cities have always been paying a larger percentage of their income for housing. That's always been a thing, at least in the last twenty thirty years. But I think. And you could probably uh, back me up on this. There's probably not anything less than a thousand dollars a month, at least, uh, for housing in the Tower District currently, which is already way over that uh, twenty to thirty percent range. Yeah, yeah. I think the fair market rate from like the searching I did is like a studio was nine hundred plus. You know, one bedroom apartment you're paying you know twelve hundred. You know, one or two bedroom house is fourteen hundred, and so. 
people are getting into situations where they're not just like, you know, that 30% of your income is an aspiration for a lot of people. You know, a lot of folks are rent burdened in a way that they're paying 50% plus of their incomes going towards rent. Yeah. Let's let's talk now about creating affordable housing, which is in part what land trusts are designed to do. So unlike when you're building high rent luxury apartments, affordable housing will not have the same kind of cash flow. And so because of this, banks are more reticent to offer credit for things like this. And so you have to go through government funding grants, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you've discovered in learning about this process and where people get stuck in that process of acquiring funding? Yeah, I would say the timelines of them increase the cost of the developments. And there are certainly requirements that this funding comes with that re- increases the cost too. So, you know, for instance, to be competitive for state of California affordable housing resources, you're, people blame prevailing wage, like, but I like prevailing wage because that means our incomes are higher too. So that's one I don't like to make the villain of the situation. But like the amenities that they're requiring increase costs, the environmental standards of the building increase the costs. And these are good things for us to be asking, but they are not required of the private sector, but required for affordable housing. So that puts them on a different footing. It's one of those things, right? Like if you have all these requirements, but that that never gets built, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like that, that's what I hear over and over again is like, it's great to have kind of idealistic visions of what it should look like. But if that means the project never gets built, then what's, what is the point there? Yeah. And, you know, the timeline of it too increases the cost of like, there's these annual funding cycles for low income tax credits, which is the the main kind of funding source that a lot of these projects require, usually in trying to get what I've witnessed in trying to get a development happening for low income housing is getting some grant resources from like a local or state source and then trying to leverage those to ultimately land the low-income housing tax credits, which is a federal source. And then that, you know, then pays for it. And the timing of taking, you know, those multiple years to have site control and to be, you know, putting in this development work drives up the cost of the project. But then I like to really drill down into like the econ- economics of these, like when we think about tax credits funding a project, those tax credits are going to somebody. And the interesting thing about a tax credit is like $1 worth of tax credits on the market is worth you know, anywhere from 75 cents to if you're lucky, like 89, 90 cents per dollar. And so what you're seeing is these tax credits are going to large corporations and banks in order to reduce their tax liability. And, you know, so you're diminishing that amount of money that then gets invested in these projects. And that that investment causes its own cost of the attorneys and the accounting required in those processes. Um, and so what we get is really tax credits for the rich with a side effect of public housing and affordable housing. And so we have to really think about like, is that the way that we should be funding housing going forward? We have this challenge in our country of continuing to concentrate wealth within small amount of individuals and corporations and financial institutions. And if we're thinking of our way of getting out of that is to subsidize, continue to subsidize them with the side effect of doing what we really need. That doesn't seem like the mechanism that's the right way. Like, you know, actually having tax income from those folks that gets directly invested into affordable housing seems like it would be more effective, but those things are the kind of way that our our interpretation of capitalism lands in, in America. So those are real challenges that, you know, the mechanisms itself drive up the cost. Yeah. I think uh, Matthew Desmond talked about this a little bit in his new book on poverty. One of the things he mentioned, mm -hmm. a great book, Evicted, he came to Fresno, did some talks. In his new book on poverty, one of the things he talks about is that at, at the federal level, we spend 
four times the amount of money on the mortgage interest tax deduction for middle-class earners, four to one relative to affordable housing. So people like me that take the, an interest deduction with my CPA in March or whatever are, are getting a larger proportion of government welfare, in some ways, that's what we can call it, than people that are getting into affordable housing. And so one of the questions he broaches is, why? What, what is this disparity? Why are we you know, helping people that seemingly need less help than uh, building more affordable housing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think that obviously has a lot of implications. Can we talk about planning commissions? They play a role in a lot of things. Should planning sure. commissions be elected? What do you think? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, in, in what I've witnessed in our planning commissions work over, you know, the kind of decade and a half that I've been paying attention is that you know they're being appointed by the mayor and you know ratified by the city council so if we've got a mayor that is not putting a focus on infill development on you know community centered projects on on stopping the the negative concentration of things like industrial uses if we don't have a mayor that's focused on those things we're not going to get a, a planning commission that are focused on those so I would support planning commissioners being elected because the the run for mayor and getting elected as mayor, you know, land use and those topics very rarely come up and they don't, you know, really move the needle as far as how voters are responding to a mayor. It's more, um, you know, their personality, their name recognition, how are they landing on public safety and pothole improvements are like the things that are really moving the needle and not land use things. So if there was a, a race that's really focused on the built environment and land use issues, that campaign could really be more focused on those things. So I would, I would support that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the review process and democratic oversight. So many large-scale projects in cities are held up by seemingly positive things like environmental impact reports, community comments, and they're held up in part because the people that are the most active in a lot of these spaces can be kind of of the NIMBY variety who have the time to kind of get involved in certain ways, which is kind of a contrast from what you're doing. So I guess my question based on that is, do you think these kind of review processes need to be streamlined or you see that as another potential way that, for example, with the police substation, things can be things can be quickly enacted without a lot of oversight? So it seems like it's like a it's like a quagmire here. Exactly. Right. It's like you want it. But like once you get it, then it kind of holds things up and it's 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 tough to figure out what the right like the golden mean is with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to divide out, you know, who we see in the traditional NIMBY role of being uh, a more affluent neighborhood, trying to stop certain public amenities that, you know, are going to increase affordable housing or other community things that are, you know, their comments are usually around, you know, changing the character of their neighborhood or increasing traffic, uh, things like that putting them in their own separate bubble and, you know, coming up with strategies to reduce their impact on stopping very important public projects from the folks that are very active and come out and community organize in disinvested, disadvantaged communities that traditionally are the dumping ground and like concentration of affordable housing, concentration of polluting uses, and those are the folks that I've organized a lot with, you know, in Southwest Fresno, trying to stop the Darling rendering plant and get that out of the community, trying to stop um, continuing to concentrate projects rather than spreading them out throughout the city. That's a different type of advocacy that is not NIMBYism, that all of these public review things were hard fought and, you know, getting a seat at the table has been so challenging and we're finally to a point where those folks are making an influence in the built environment. So the timing of folks saying that we need to reduce the amount of public input and that's what's holding these projects up, I'm suspicious of because how we see those things land in the real world when we're reducing regulation, that is not doing and making the best things happen throughout the community and through the more affluent areas 
it's being weaponized against poor communities of color. And so like being really nuanced in how we change regulation to reduce that amount of input really needs to still preserve the voices of folks that are most impacted by it because that's my worry in you know removing CEQA or removing any sort of review process is that it's going to hurt people the most um, that have already been hurt. So that's a really important thing to know when we're you know talking about you know reducing CEQA or other environmental things. Yeah, and if we take a step back and talk about things at the state level, I mean, there's been some initiatives, you know, SB6, AB 2011, some efforts at the state level to coordinate amongst the different in- agencies and institutions that get involved. How, what do you see from the state level in terms of efforts to support projects like you at the community level? Yeah, um, I think the the thing we see most often at the state is there's a center of gravity in the LA metro area and the Bay Area metro area, and the needs and the dynamics of those communities are setting the stage of how things happen statewide, and those don't necessarily land well in the valley. And so it's really important in those spaces that you know valley voices. Are at the table and that you know whatever's being designed that it's designed to work here too can you so give an example a, of that as an example just how how the state will cater to to larger metropolitan areas and sometimes at the expense well, of well you know in the implementation a lot of the funding for these programs whether it be like affordable housing sustainable communities you know a lot of the things happening through housing community development in the state around like you have to have this transit thing in place or you have to have these certain amenities within a certain distance all of those things put the valley at a disadvantage when you're counting up the points to get these resources so that's been been one thing that i've noticed specifically i've tried to get those comments into the state about those issues There were some others, you know, I think taking the approach of like, you know, a Bay Area community and trying to combat NIMBYs and like reduce regulation in order to make some of these things happen in other places within the Bay Area doesn't fit within the Valley because the the NIMBY situation is different here. And the neighbors really speaking up to stop certain projects are, again, the, you know, kind of traditionally disinvested and, you know, marginalized neighborhoods. So that's, that's another thing I, I witnessed. I don't remember the specific regulation, what that was around. I'll try to think of some other examples, but yeah, absolutely. Some, some, one of the other challenges I wanted to talk about was around homelessness. Speaking of books, I just am reading this great book called homelessness is a housing problem. And it really, what that book does is it shifts the narrative from kind of this idea that it's a moral issue. There's moral challenges, whether that's addiction or, you know, family fallout or something like along those lines to the structural challenges, which is, you know, if you kind of do a straight contrast and look at, you know, with variables controlled across the United States, the places that are necessarily low income don't have the same rates of homelessness. It really comes down to the housing stock in a lot of these places, Uh, but that's often not talked about. Can you discuss, uh, to the best of your ability, your understanding of connection specifically in Fresno with homelessness and the housing stock problem? Yeah, I think, you know, here we still look at it very much as a moral issue. So what I've seen in when housing is being developed for uh, the community, there's much more desirability to segment out a part of the population that it can serve like okay it can be okay for this to serve veterans or this to serve you know families or single mothers and those are like politically palatable but when it comes to like just general population and anybody or even you know the chronic homeless that were identified kind of through the housing first strategy of like provide folks housing first, get them into housing, get them stabilized and then deal with whatever substance abuse issue they might have, mental health issue, job training issue. Like you can understand what those issues are much better if somebody's in stable housing. So that was always like a challenging political space within 
Fresno is just getting housing that, you know, somebody that's addicted to drugs and actively using can live there. And then we work out these situations. So that's, that's been a challenge, just having enough people trying to build those things. You know, it's predominantly been the Fresno Housing Authority building those projects. There's more interest in it now. The company that I had worked for is working on, you know, this was somebody I worked for for a year that was a for-profit affordable housing developer, does permanent supportive housing, focusing on homeless or at risk for homeless. So there's there's like growing amount of developers working on it in the, the community. So that's helpful. But again, like us being competitive for those resources with other places in the state is always a challenge. And, you know, for a lot of those resources, you're competing federally as well. Um, but there's a lot of great folks working on it. You know, my wife works at the Fresno Housing Authority working on the, the HMIS system, which is like the homelessness management information system, all the data that's required in order to report on those things and track on, you know, who is in line for housing next. So there's a lot of smart folks working on those things. Hopefully it improves. You know, it's definitely in a bad state right now. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have a follow-up question on that. No, I mean, not specifically. I just, I just, for me, it seems like we need to have a more nuanced discussion of it. It it definitely feels like one of those polarized discussions where I think there's some sides that'll just make it all structure and some sides will make it all moral. And I think, you know, I think when we try to manage people's uh, mental health or substance abuse issues, that's, that's complicated, right? And has a lot to do with family history and, you know, individual situations. And I think, what it seems like, it seems like from at least a societal level, it would be wiser to allocate our resources to managing the housing problem first. Not that we don't need yeah. to help to support people. I mean, we know the long history of the the closure and the removal of a lot of these institutions that helped the mentally ill in the United States that happened yeah. in the 70s and 80s. And we know what kind of what the outcomes are. I don't yeah. think we have the kind of political environment where that would make sense to return those institutions. Yeah. And- you know, I mean, I, you know you've was... watched one over at Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> I have too, you know. Yeah. I don't think we want to go back to that world either. Those but... weren't necessarily good spaces, yeah. And the other thing, the dynamic in Fresno is a lot of our kind of older institutions working in the homelessness space um, were more service providers. So they're like service providers first, and then they're stepping into housing and not like a housing organization from its start. Um but also several of them are very faith-based, which is its own dynamic. And when it goes to the moral issues, they're you know wanting to lead with getting people connected with faith. And that's the pathway out of an addiction or out of you know you, your mental health issue and not much as much like science or data-based. And so we need more folks taking that approach. And it's a you know specific to our community. The other thing is these kind of like one fit all, one size fits all solutions. Like a lot of the the housing being built is this, you know, kind of same type of apartment where not as much deploying things that are either safe camping zones where like just where you're at, you can get to a zone that has, you know, minimal amenities of a restroom and a shower and a place to wash your clothes and, you know, electricity that you can plug into and you can you know camp there until housing is ready fresno has always been against that type of thing and then this next step further would be like a tiny home village you know uh prefabricated things that we have some of those at the poverello house but currently the city's code is really limiting on how to get those types of developments um started and it's kind of a unknown process to get through that we've actually been navigating that um, as a group of organizations at the Fresno Community Economic Development Partnership. Those are different CLTs and CDCs around Fresno that are working together on um, housing issues. And so that was been one of our hurdles is trying to get the city to change their code for these tiny home villages to allow them to be more of a streamlined approval process. Okay. One last question on the affordable housing section before we go uh, to my favorite yeah. section, over versus underrated. Um, 
one of the things I've been reading about a lot lately, and this has been kind of a focus of my kind of research interests, is around private equity and asset managers. So oh. Blackstone is now one of the largest owners of affordable housing in the United States. Them and one other a private equity group control more affordable housing than any other organization in our country. And private equity has its primary interest in its shareholders and making sure that profits are maintained. And sometimes that can come at the cost of you know, things like updates and, you know, making sure that affordable housing is safe to live in and yep. then increased evictions, the list goes on and on and on. So I guess my question here is what's, what, what do we need to do to make sure affordable housing uh, continues to be uh, used to help people and not to, uh, you know, line pockets of wall street executives far away? <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, the uh, big picture to give a good snapshot of it is end capitalism, but, you know, that's a, a longer term goal, I guess. So much of how housing is done in this country is rooted in its, you know, kind of private equity and the, the profitability of banks. You know, every single home mortgage is just a profit center for banking. We really need to decommodify housing and that housing is a human right and that we need to really build a house for everybody. A, a friend of mine posted a meme the other day that was like, when we're having food together, everybody gets a plate before anybody gets seconds. Like we need to apply that to housing, that everybody gets a home before you get to be an owner of multiple homes. And, you know, these concentrations of, of housing under the ownership of large corporations just needs to, to end. I don't know how to get there. You know, we're going to focus on our neighborhood and be ready for whatever kind of state national movements are there to, to deconstruct these concentrations, but they're definitely doing more harm than good. We're now going to pivot to a lighter category, which is over versus underrated. <laughs> I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. You tell me whether you think they're over. Capitalism or... is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with us. We'll start with a simpler one than capitalism. Me and Ed's pizza over underrated. I think it's rated about the right amount. I love me and Ed's pizza. I, I would say they're they're rated right at the right point. You know, a lot of people love them. If you don't like it, you don't like it. So they're properly like cornmeal crust is really, really good. Yeah. Okay. So if you're ordering pizza on a Friday night, who are you calling? We do mean ads often. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Next one. The bungalow style home. Is that over or underrated? Ooh, I would say I grew up in a craftsman bungalow. So I'm going to say they're, they're underrated because I love them more than most. Just the, the craftsmanship of it, the, how the home is organized, you know, with with more separate rooms, not the big open concept that's more popular these days. You know, you just can't match the level of craftsmanship that's gone into it, uh, as well as the the size of the home on the property and being more neighborhood focused. So I'm going to definitely go underrated. So if you you bought a plot of land and a home builder was going to build your house and he said, well, we've got two we've got two types. We can either build you a bungalow or a ranch style house. You would choose a bungalow. Yep, I'm a bungalow. Okay, wonderful. Next, and you mentioned it before. I'll just go again. La Elegante, over or underrated? Oh, again, I think they're like rated at the right point. A lot of people say they're the the best taco in town, and I'm I'm in agreement with that. I I love La Elegante. They're like avocado sauce that they put on top of the taco was was delicious. Always a good spot. Because sometimes you know. There, there's a lot of taquerias. And so, you know, sure people, mention, yeah. people mention La Elegante a lot. And I like, I really enjoy La Elegante, but I do feel like it's, it, it is hyped quite a bit. So that was kind of underlying the question, but let me ask you this then. What is, <laughs> what is, what is your order at La Elegante if you're going there for lunch? Ooh, two and two, two carne asada and two uh, adobado tacos is my, my go-to. And what's uh, Autobot? And just like how much they grill the tortilla is just like, it's perfect. And mm -hmm. it's all mounded up, it's spicy. It's great. It's the delivery device. It really matters quite a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. 
Next one. And this one I kind of am on the fence about, so I'd be curious. Historical preservation efforts in cities. Sometimes they can be really costly uh, to maintain buildings or bring them up to code. Uh, is it worth it? I would say in Fresno specifically, it's underrated. The nuance there to really pay attention to is historic preservation can sometimes lift white supremacy issues of like being cared more about a building than the community and the people around it. So sometimes historic preservation efforts can lose sight of the people most impacted. So that's something that I've tried to really look at in the nuance of my work is that we're not trying to like, you know, just protect the character of a neighborhood, which again is exclusionary, but we're trying to like honor our history. It's a sustainability practice. The most sustainable building is one that's already built. So all those things together, I think, you know, historic preservation is important and I put a lot of my own work into that. Okay, next one. You are suddenly the planning czar of the Tower District and an empty lot becomes available, okay? There are two proposals, only two, so you have to choose one or the other. There's a proposal to put in a small grocery store, and then the second proposal is uh, to put in a large community garden. Assuming that both of these are equally needed, how would you decide and why? Yeah, grocery store, 100%. Um, we're in a um, food desert, sometimes called a food apartheid um, situation where we don't have enough fresh, healthy food available. A grocery store provides more food than a community garden would. We can always find other places. You know, community gardens are great for the leftover pieces, things that aren't being developed yet, things that can't be developed. Those are really important. And in Fresno specific environment, we tend to have land around every home and a home can have a private garden and there's not as much pressure on you know, people within apartments not having space to grow where community gardens are more important. So, you know, in our Fresno specific environment, um, we need a grocery store and we already have some community garden space in the neighborhood. Okay, next one, uh, the architectural design of Fresno High. Yeah. Do you like it? Oh, the the new buildings? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. There's there's a lot of debate in historic preservation on around like, do you try to match the old with your new so it fits within the context or you try to create some contrast between a modern building and an old one so you're still like honoring the old? I think Frizzle High did a good job about striking that balance with you know the historic building right in the middle and some like nice quad area with the new buildings to the side um appreciate them coming all the way to the street you know that's something in in fresno that we shy away from you know we want our buildings you know 15 20 feet away from the street and like it's better and more for you know density and kind of an urban feel for our buildings to be up at the street. So I, th I think they did a good job. A friend wants to meet for a sandwich in your neighborhood and they say, I either want to go to Piemonte's or Moto. What do you think? Ooh, depends on the friend and the mood. Like I've, I've been having Piedmontese sandwiches since I was a kid. That was where we would always go. Like if we were going to the lake or something, we'd, you know, get some Piedmontese sandwiches and, and have them ready. So there's memory and feelings connected to food that can supersede its quality. So like that, I have that for Piedmontese. I wish they had different bread choices. Like I think if they did that, they would be at a different level, but it's, you know, they're just one, one bread choice. But I do enjoy Moto. They are doing a fantastic job there with the quality of what's coming out. We had Moto just on Friday. So, you know, we, we go there, but I go to Piedmontese more often. I'll say that. Okay. Next one. The Tower Theater as a venue space. Is it over or underrated? I think it's underrated. It's going to become much better. I'm really glad that the city is now the owner. We've been working with Nick Kennedy, who's the new manager. Really respect him and how he's approaching the management of it. We have an event there next Saturday, 12th, if this comes out before then 
We're going to be in the lounge part, which is the former restaurant. It was the Daily Planet when I worked there when I was at community college. And then it was the Painted Table as a catering company. And now it's kind of like part of the Tower Theater rental options. And so we're going to do an event there and see how that goes. I'd love to do events within the theater itself. Um, I think improvements need to happen. Accessibility is a challenge and making it, you know, kind of have modern amenities. So that's the next step for it, but I'll, I'll put it in the, the underrated category right now. Okay. Uh, last one, another either, or, um, again, you've been appointed as the plannings are, do you keep the road or get rid of the road in the Fulton mall? Ooh, great question. So I was um, an organizer for Save the Fulton Mall, uh, and I very much wanted to see it remain a pedestrian and bike-only space and still agree with that today. I think in what we've seen happen through the pandemic and needing more public spaces where we can be more spaced out was important. I don't think the cars have added greatly to the success of that corridor. It's more of like that was happening anyway. Uh, and even I don't think the data really supports that this has really increased sales or business openings. You know, I think the process of it being languishing and the construction process actually put out a lot of small minority-owned businesses, which was really hard to watch. People closed or moved. And so I'm definitely a pedestrian mall advocate. Okay. So we're going to talk more now about the Tower District. I have a few questions about that, and then we're going to talk about goals of the land trust. So do you believe neighborhoods have identities, or is that just a kind of tool that we use in our minds to create kind of an image of organizing our world? Well, a lot of it is like it comes to symbolism and those things aren't aren't real, but we make them real by having shared agreements. So within neighborhoods, there is shared culture, shared memory that really does make those things real. And within the Tower District, we have that, you know, with the struggle of our queer community, the struggle through the AIDS epidemic that directly impacted my family in you know our pride parade in our concentration of like cool cultural issues and some like-minded people that live in the neighborhood all together really support that you know tower is a real place and has real identity the challenge for me as an organizer is trying to extend that identity to more people you know people south of belmont sometimes or south of olive and even south of belmont are sometimes excluded from that benefit of a tower identity and solidarity with each other and the the benefits that come from from tower versus like north of olive and so like wanting to really reinforce those things and make more people feel like they're part of tower okay what amenities does tower have a surplus surplus of and what does it not have enough of uh, recently there was a, a politician who said we should make tower district a little more family friendly do you hope for that what I hope for is like us reinforcing the multi-generational nature that Tower has always been. I think we've started to saturate with more clubs and bars that are, you know, 21 and over and, you know, entertainment focus based on drinking. And I think we need more, you know, I'm that the amount we have now is fine as long as we had other amenities like fresh, healthy food is one, all ages venues where, you know, aren't serving alcohol, where youth can be. We need more youth spaces in the neighborhood because there are youth that come to the neighborhood, even, you know, youth experiencing homelessness. So we need spaces for them. We don't have enough parks. And so that's where we had that success with Broadway Park. And there's a park being built by Fresno High, and we need to continue to make sure connections to Roading Park are better. We need to improve the Ted C. Wills Center and the San Pablo Park under the freeway. All those things need to be improved so that they're actually filling that need for open green space for the neighborhood. 
do does tower need more parking or should we get rid of some parking and use it for other things oh we're at this influx where you know we currently don't have any parking structures but we're at that point where as we increase density we're going to need more structured parking so i think that that step and how it happens is really important you know does the tower theater complex get a parking structure where else in the neighborhood could a parking structure happen? Um, those are important. And then continuing to improve our public transit, you know, the, the bus system, we have good buses coming online. The electric buses are really great, but the frequency and the amenities along there, you know, better bus structures, you know, shelters so that they're, um, you're not waiting in the sun or in the rain, but just a little bench. Or some places just have the pole, you know, don't even have a bench. So all those improvements need to happen so that we have better transit. It's good to see some of these road diets going on where we're reducing the amount of lanes and getting in protected bike lanes. The Palm one is in construction now. The Belmont one is in construction now. So I'm really curious to see how those roll out. And we need to start dedicating some time into like, people getting better access to bikes. Now that we have these you know, bike lanes going on, we need more people getting access to bikes. So like free bikes being a thing again, you know, bike rentals, bike shops, we need all those things to really support more people biking in the neighborhood. I'm trying to picture what it would look like to propose some kind of tiered uh, parking structure somewhere in tower I imagine that would be a situation to talk about NIMBYs that they would come out and force. Do you imagine that yeah. being something the community would support, or do you think that would be something that they would be antagonistic towards? It depends the group, you know, so that's where some of the historic preservation groups can come out and like try to stop a project because it's going to change the character of a neighborhood, increase traffic, those, those things that come from places of privilege. And so we need to really balance that with the goals of the neighborhood. You know, I, I'd like to see us build some more like mixed use buildings that are, you know, three or four stories tall with like a, a parking structure below or on the first level. There's some really great ones that have a parking structure that's just like some small retail spaces along the street so that you, the impact to the street isn't that there's a parking structure there. It's more that there's these great small shops that are opportunities for small businesses. So those are things that I have in mind as we try to like build our capacity to do some larger developments. I'd love to you know, be part of some of that happening. Let's now talk about goals and ambitions. So let's assume, you know, and this is a crazy assumption that it's green lights all the way with funding and approvals. What are your ambitions with the land trust? What do you hope to accomplish with it in let's say the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so I think really important is like centering the community voice so like i have some some vision and some goals of where we can be but all along that way i'm leading and i'm bringing people into positions of power to guide that so in what i have envisioned we might not land on all those things but really the process is important for me so not not to gloss over that but, you know, I think aspirations that I have for our land trust is to own a full block of, you know, the neighborhood where we can have the neighbors really collaboratively thinking about the resources and amenities that they have for their own homes. So that could look like taking down the fences and have a shared green space between the houses where we maybe build one large pool that, you know, a whole block gets to enjoy, build one really great wood shop that everybody gets to use the tools of, have, you know, one or two trucks that anybody could use when they need to get soil or supplies from the hardware store so that like those things don't need to be individual household costs. And then densify that block where, you know, along the corridor, build mixed use housing, multiple stories, you know, like the Fulton corridor. And then within the neighborhood, be adding in accessory dwelling units. Those are like second houses along with the main home so we could take a block that maybe has 20 homes and then build in you know 20 units of affordable housing that's along the corridor and another 20 units that are ADUs within the existing home framework and we've taken a neighborhood that houses 20 families and 
increase that to, to 60 families, all with really top quality shared resources. You know, so those are the kind of visions that I have for the neighborhood. The other is Belmont. I really want to turn Belmont into a really quality mixed use corridor. It has some really great landmark and amenities like Roading Park and the zoo at one end. We've got you know, the best paletteria in town at Lorena, Broadway and Belmont. There's some really great historic buildings along that corridor. Really intensify that, turn it into a corridor more like Olive where we've got a bunch of active commercial uses, have some multi-story mixed use developments that are housing and, and commercial, add in public amenities, you know, a grocery store, a library, things like that that really are deserved by the neighborhood. We're going to close with two questions. Well, one's a question and one's more of a giving you an opportunity to share. So first, what are two or three books uh, that you'd recommend to listeners who are interested in these topics or adjacent ones? And then if you could share a little bit more about the event coming up on August 12th. Yeah. So first disclosure on the books is like, I've realized that I'm not a great reader and it's hard for me to time find time within my day to read. And so when I kind of accepted that and moved to audiobooks, I've been able to read a lot more. And um, I'm of the camp that considers listening to an audiobook as reading, and it's really helped me read more. And so I recommend that for everybody. If you don't want to support Audible and the empire that Bezos is building with Amazon, there's a great app called Libby that uh, if you have a library book, you can all get all these free audiobooks. So really amazing. So some books I'd recommend, I finished Adrienne Marie Brown's book called Pleasure Activism, and that's been really helpful in thinking about my work and how I balance really important but hard activism work with still finding pleasure and, you know, enjoyment in my own life. So that's been a great book that I recommend for any activist. And then I finished two of a three book series that I really like. I'm, I like sci-fi and even like climate cli-fi climate fiction there's and also really like exploring different gender and lgbtq plus things so i got that from lyndon lewis is an author that wrote first sister second rebel i've read both of those and those were great and i haven't yet read the last hero in that series and then i'm currently halfway through the parable of the sower by octavia butler and that's a really great book I did finish her book that was her vampire book called Fledgling, and I really like vampire stories. And I think that was an interesting take. So I recommend Fledgling by Octavia Butler as well. Wonderful. Can you share about the event upcoming? Yeah. So within the South Tower Community Land Trust, since we're working on housing within the Tower District, and the Tower District is the center of the LGBTQ plus community in the region. It's really a regional landmark for folks and where there's a lot of shared identity. It's important that we have a queer housing strategy for our organization. And, you know, rather than just developing that ourselves, we really want to welcome people into that process. So that was the impetus for doing the Queer Housing Summit. But since that idea, we've brought in some other co-hosts to the to the event, the LGBTQ Plus Resource Center downtown and uh, Youth Leadership Institute, which is a statewide youth journalism organization, are both our co-hosts. So really excited about the event. Four hours, August 12th from 11 to 3 p.m. Really going to be a great like, uh, environment where we'll have music. We're going to have a drag show during lunch. There's free lunch from CDT Cocina. We'll have tamales and tacos. And then the program will really be kind of in four parts. We've got a YLI is going to talk about storytelling and how to tell your own story. And we'll have a storytelling booth on site where folks that attend can share their experiences in housing and their aspirations. We're going to have a panel about disability justice and how that intersects with queer justice issues in a very important ways. And so that panel I'm really excited about we're in a presentation about tenants' rights and tenant organizing with the tenants' union um, and how to how to organize tenants' unions and the importance of that within the environment that we're at today. 
And then I'm going to lead a design workshop um, that is really designed around us setting that vision for the neighborhood and for um, you know safe, affirming, affordable housing for all. And everybody's going to do breakout tables and design a block of the neighborhood together and what it could look like in 15 to 20 years and, and share those back. And we're really going to use that information to set the strategy for what we work on for the next couple of decades with the South Tower Community Land Trust. So excited for people to attend that. And if you want to register, the registration link is bit.ly slash Fresno QHS. Again, bit slash ly, sorry, blt.ly slash Fresno QHS. Uh, I'm sure you'll post the link along with the description, but excited for people to attend that and really bring your full self and, you know, get ready to share yourself and hear stories from other people, organize together and, you know, make more affordable housing happen for community. Thank you for talking with me today. These kind of conversations give me a lot of hope for not only you know housing issues, but just really civic and community involvement. And that's something that you know I, I I see declining across our society. People getting out of their houses and getting involved in their communities, but it takes people like you mm-hmm. to reinvigorate people. So I appreciate the work you're doing, and then ultimately taking the time to talk with us about uh, some of these projects. I think yeah, and I I can say that I see that work accelerating in some ways and getting to different people. The organizing that happened around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, you know, thinking about different ways to organize through the pandemic and organize around disability justice issues. Like I think the face of organizing is changing and is less, you know, white male faces and and more diverse and young faces. And that's really important to see and excited about. Wonderful. Thank you again, Kyle. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.